Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome back, Anna. It hasn't been that long since we dropped the episode uh, with you called Answering the Call, where you told us all about labor for Palestine. You walked us through what it was like shutting down or trying to shut down some of these arm manufacturers to Israel and, you know, why, why you're answering the call from Palestinian workers and and what that call was. Uh, And then not long after we record, I'm on your Twitter and I'm seeing a lot of kind of candid photos from the West Bank. And they don't have any other photo credit attached to it. And I'm wondering, these kind of look like first-person photographs that Anna's floating up, but that's not possible. I just talked to her. And I messaged you. I said, are you in the West Bank? And what did you say? I am. (laughs) That blew my mind, Anna. I, I immediately messaged Santiago. Immediately. I think I even went upstairs. I even went upstairs to my family. I was like, remember that interview I told you about? She's over there. She's in the West Bank. She's doing something she's calling protective presence here. Like, I felt like you were doing what we all wanted to do. Like, it just seemed like more, right? Like, we all feel so helpless over here in the the heart of the imperialist machine. And we do what we can. and, And that's not to dissuade anybody from doing the work that we do. But it just seemed like you went above and beyond what most of us are doing And so I had to have you back in the studio. I have to know, like, why? Like, why seems obvious, but why? Like, that's a risk. That's expensive. That's that's a risk. (laughs) That's all I keep coming back to. So we're going to spend this episode, like, just kind of picking apart your trip and and telling us more about the West Bank, because our eyes are so focused on Gaza, and we can understand why. But in the meantime, there's a lot going on in the West Bank. There always has been. Again, we're not going to date this from October 7th and beyond. But there has been an escalation there as well in in the occupation and the violence and the oppression. So, Anna, what made you decide to go to the West Bank? So it, it was not my first time there. I'd actually been over the summer with um, the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. So some folks who were connected to that, got the call out from some Israeli and some international activists who asked that more people kind of come respond to this uh, request from uh, Palestinian villagers to to provide this protective presence. Um, And and so with the, you know, wonderful uh, fundraising capacity of my community, um, I was actually able to go and I I brought a... uh, non-Jewish comrade from from Surge with me and we actually both uh were able to go down there for about two weeks and um do do our best to uh you know kind of stem some of the the violence that that a lot of the folks there face from not just the army but also you know Jewish settlers that live literally like right next door how'd you get in you know what this is the funniest part I, I'm Jewish, right? So you can go anywhere. <laughs> I, I can go anywhere. It took me about two minutes to, uh, you know, cross into the border. They asked me what. So you flew into Israel? I flew into Israel. They asked me uh, if I've been before, what my favorite Jewish holiday is, and where I learned my Hebrew. And they welcomed me in, right? Be- because, you know, it's it's an apartheid country, right? So my ability to go even in the middle of a war zone is almost completely unimpeded, right? I'm surprised your activism didn't get you on a list, though, of persona non grata in Israel. If they had Googled me, they probably wouldn't have let me in. But, you know, if someone comes and they're Jewish and they speak Hebrew and they have a good passport, right? Why why bother to Google them? So it was honestly like such a breeze to to get into Israel and and as well as as a Jew, as a Canadian, my ability to go from Israel, drive straight into the West Bank, where, where mind you, you know, for 75 years, 
my comrades here who are Palestinian have begged to go back to their country that I got into in two minutes, right? And the folks that I visited in the, in the West Bank have never left to see the ocean, to see Al-Aqsa, but I was able to drive in between all these various kind of borders, places that other people can't go to, literally because I'm Jewish in an apartheid country. You mentioned that you had been you you had gone over in the summer, um, so before everything, uh, all this more recent events. What what did you notice was different, both in Israel and in the West Bank, uh, from when you were last there? You know the the difference is stark, and even um, you know I was in occupied East Jerusalem for a few days um, before we went down to. Uh, Masafriyata in the South Hebron Hills, and the entire area was just almost completely empty. And, you know, we were talking to some comrades there, and they're saying, you know, people are scared to go outside. People don't want to leave their homes because, you know, even as Israeli citizens, like, you know, Palestinians, they're really not safe. And a lot of folks have been harassed just kind of going home from work, walking home from school, things like that, right? But again, that's so mild compared to the situation in, you know, Area C of the West Bank, which is uh, a fairly rural place that that's mostly peppered by different Palestinian villages. And uh, since October, their ability to have any sort of movement has almost been completely blocked. And the Israeli government itself actually gave arms and set up uh, militias for these these illegal settlements that are nearby, right? And so, obviously, the situation's been so tense. In October is the olive harvest that is a key part of people's economics, right? But most people were unable to even leave their homes and get out to their fields for fear of being shot, right? And it's a founded fear, right? We're reading about Israeli strikes hitting civilians on their way to work, sitting by a fire, family members just wiped out. And and I think folks think a lot of that kind of violence is contained to Gaza. I wanted to go back, though, uh, for a minute. You talked about being able to go where your comrades can't go. Does, does that, did that come with a level of guilt? Absolutely. And, you know, to leave the organizing here to go there uh, and, and do that protective presence. It's, it's obviously such a privilege and, and something that, you know, for me is so easy and so simple, but again, is like such a key part for my comrades of what it means for Palestinian liberation. Right. And, you know, some, some of my friends asked me like, bring back some dirt, bring back uh you know, any piece of Palestine for me, right? And did you? Uh I, I absolutely did. Um and and there's a great coffee shop. I got like kilos of coffee to hand out, but um, you know, it's it's tough to you know, both understand the importance of of leveraging your privilege while while recognizing, you know, how completely unjust and unfair the situation is. You talked about that a little bit in our last episode of just, you know, taking risks. We were talking about tickets at that point, though. We were talking about getting trespassing tickets and getting, you know, held by a couple hours by Toronto police or GTA police. And this is a whole other story altogether, because I saw some of the footage that you posted up to your Twitter account of just being kind of surrounded by Israeli soldiers with their hands on their weapons. And you, part of that protective presence was speaking up to them, challenging them to a degree. Can you tell us what that was like personally? Like I, we put on a brave face, but I know that I would just literally be shaking and my heart would be racing and I'd probably have to have a good cry after that kind of confrontation, you know, not where they could see me. Right. But because I know, or did you feel protected because you were Jewish? Is that the whole point? When a battalion of angry soldiers with machine guns comes towards you and surrounds you, no matter what the circumstances is, 
it's definitely scary, you know? Um, and and not just, like, their actual presence, but just the fact that they could come any time, right? So, you know, it, it was really hard for uh, myself and my comrades to sleep at night knowing that part of the reason we were there is to watch for folks coming at night, right? But, you know, the the thing about... Uh, again, particularly being Jewish in this Jewish supremacist state and and being internationals and having, again, those good passports is even standing directly next to a Palestinian, you can see the way that the army just treats us so differently. So, you know, yes, um, I was able to, to, you know, talk back to the army a little bit, give them a little bit of sass. Uh, you know, they definitely took my passports, held their guns on me. But, you know, obviously, like, the PR that would come from shooting a, a, a white woman from Canada who's also Jewish is a lot different than the news we hear almost every day of, of Palestinians being shot. Right. And, and so, you know, even in those moments where we were surrounded, you know, they would give us a hard time. They would take our passports and question us, but they would literally take the Palestinian who was standing next to me, uh, detain him, surround him by guards and, and soldiers who had their guns pointed to him and and yell at the family to to go get his ID, which is literally like steps away in his house because we're on his land, right? And and so, you know, part of um, the protective presence, and it is scary. Again, don't get me wrong, but um, it, it's really understanding and leveraging, um, you know, our our privilege and and understanding how officers interpret that privilege, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, you know, here, everything that happens passes through, you know, the lens of the phone, the different narratives we hear. We're very, you know, far, we feel very far away from everything that's happening. Being there, I'm curious, is the... What, what what is what are the people of the West Bank hearing of what's going on in Gaza? Is it do they have full access to the information? Are the narratives kind of that we're hearing here the same as what you're hearing there? You know how how does that differ? I guess what did you hear when you were there? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the most kind of surreal parts of the trip is that. You know, like every night, whatever village we were in, the community would gather and start watching, you know, Al Jazeera, um, start, you know, following the same kind of like news feeds and Twitter feeds that that we're following here. Right. So, um, you know, it, it's so surreal to to hear the bombs of Gaza in the distance while watching what's going on on Al Jazeera, right? You can hear the bombs dropping in Gaza from where you are? Uh, in this one village, we were we were about 40 kilometers away, and, and you could hear the bombs, and you could also hear constant fighter jets overhead. And uh, yeah, it, it, so it's pretty surreal, right? And then, uh, you know, unfortunately, my, my Arabic is not great, but, uh, you know, Netanyahu sounds the same in in most languages. So you can definitely tell, you know, like there's so much kind of like conversation, stressing, fretting about what's going on. And, and, you know, it's important to remember that most people, uh, families are really big, right? So people have family in Gaza, people have family in other parts of the West Bank, people have family internationally. And, and so they're really worried and think about, those folks, right? And and also for a lot of people, you know, um, like their ability to work either in Israel in different parts of the West Bank through permits 
have been completely canceled because of uh, what's going on in Gaza, right? And so, you know, there's a, an awful lot more kind of time for people to to just sort of watch the news and think about the situation and not only hear about what's going on there, but also, you know, hear messages from family that are directly impacted, right? That was one thing that I heard that really kind of pissed me off amongst everything else is that uh, the amount of Palestinian manual labor Israel depends on for their agricultural industry and, you know, as a matter of principle, cutting them off uh, during the war. But then other countries stepped up and sent over their own migrant workers to be exploited so that, you know, they wouldn't miss a beat in terms of harvesting the crop. And then you, you juxtapose that with the olive harvest and the deliberateness that went around kind of preventing folks from from doing that. And I imagine that has a big economic impact, too, on people in the West Bank who, like, we're talking about tens of thousands of workers who normally are employed every day are now not, right? So how are they feeling? Do they feel like they're next? Do they feel like it's just a matter of time before the West Bank is annexed? You know, the pressure is certainly on. I, I think anyone who who lives in at least Area C of the West Bank can definitely see the ways that this is sort of a, a pre-annexation in, in that, you know, when when families aren't able to support themselves, when they're denied of these permits, when they're denied of the ability to, to farm and graze, they have to then move to the cities where there's not much work, there's not really great conditions, but then that that's the ability to kind of clear the land. And, and you know, some people definitely think that, you know, maybe what's next is is a Gaza in, you know, the city of Hebron, the city of Riata. Yeah, but, you know, for for a lot of the Palestinians who previously had permits, you know, you know, most people have like 10 kids, a wife, huge families, right? And and sort of that single income to support them with, right? So even when they they can't uh go in to to Israel or move to different sort of places to do that work, you know, a lot of them will have to sort of illegally enter into Israel to to take on those construction jobs that obviously when when you don't have a permit at all is even more exploitative, right? But it's it's one of the few ways that they can really subsist and and support their family and so you know, it's that really painful cycle where Palestinians are being exploited to build over their homeland for Israel in order to uh, sustain themselves on their homeland, you know? I'm curious, um, while you were there, did you talk to many uh, Israelis? Um, and did you get like a a sense of like, what what did what are they hearing and thinking of everything that's going on? Yeah. I think the funniest thing my friend said was that he he's never had so many pleasant interactions with Zionists than he has on our, you know, plane ride over to Israel and in Israel proper. Right. And, and honestly on the train from the airport to Jerusalem, we had about three, uh, you know, American expats tell us, Oh, it's so important that you're here right now. Um, and and just they know. Yeah, right. Uh, and just like the the wildest kind of um, semi-fascist statements that that you don't really hear here, right? And then you know, obviously, as part of our protective presence, we were with uh, lots of Israelis, which is great because our Arabic and Hebrew are are not great. Anti-Zionist Israelis, yeah. Anti-Zionist Israelis, exactly. Um, and, you know, they were telling us that even even saying things like end the war or even in October saying things like return the hostages was seen as like hugely radical. Right. And the thing is that mainstream Israeli society, mainstream Israeli news is so skewed and is so built like specifically to kind of 
tell the population what the government wants to hear, right? And so unless the average person is really going out of their way to get alternative information, which most people aren't because they don't see a reason to, there's there's nothing out there that's going to tell you like, you know, Israel is at fault um, or or anything like that, right? And, you know, when you walk in Israel proper, say in, in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, the situation is so far removed from what's happening in Gaza, from what's happening in the West Bank, that it's so easy to get distracted by, you know, the consumerism, uh, the the facade of safety that Israel creates, that, you know, if I wasn't there for, uh, you know, this specific uh, task, I probably would have forgotten that there was a terrible war going on, you know? The protective presence that you did, it was a call. It was another answering the call, part two, uh, three and four. But did you jump at the chance or did you have to let it sit for a little bit, let it percolate in your mind or the second you got the offer? Because I think there's a lot of us that, while we talk a good game, that if we could get over there and help in a more meaningful way, I think a lot of people would do it. You see people even making statements like, you know, especially in response to those fucking tweets we all get, like, why don't you just take a flight to Gaza? Well, how about the West Bank? You know, again, it's like, sure. She took one of the, their advice. But but in all reality, a lot of us feel like, and it's it's naive and I have no idea how to fight, but you just feel fucking helpless sometimes, you know, like protesting over and over again and watching it unfold in Gaza. And it's just... It's so sad, too, that that call even had to go out, that that we created this international system of law that is nowhere, is is absolutely nowhere. It has no impact on on Gazans, on Palestinians right now. And so it's left to activists from all across the globe to fundraise and go over there and then do protective presence but you know only not only in the west bank but there's nothing like that that we can do essentially for gaza is it effective is the protective presence effective did it is it decreasing attacks is it is it frustrating the settlers and the soldiers yeah i think um you know so for the first two weeks after um october 7th there was zero movement allowed at all and uh, Israelis weren't even able to, you know, anti-Zionist Israelis weren't even able to to get into the region, right? And so in those two weeks alone, there was multiple shootings, murders. Um, in Since October 7th, there's been in Masafar Yata, uh, 16 villages that have been forced to abandon their homes and move to urban areas because of death threats of settlers. Um, and so, you know, one of the villages that I went to, their their neighboring village had, um, you know, left because of, of the settler threats. And uh, the village we were at, they, in mid-November, their settlers came and said, if you don't leave in 24 hours, we're going to murder your entire family. And so that's when they started calling the protective presence. But but they're still there, right? And so, you know, that to me feels like at least a little bit of a win, you know? And and in fact, as we were uh, heading out of that village, our uh, Israeli counterpart said, I'm not sure if they still need us for protection or, or just really enjoy the sleepovers. So So, you know, there's definitely like some um benefit to it and you know uh one of the places we were at they were able to do more plowing with four uh internationals with them than they've been able to do all season right so you know when your livelihood depends on getting i don't know vegetables and what have you into the ground uh, in getting your your flock out to feed, then you know every day that you're able to do that 
is that that little bit more of of that resistance, right? Do do I think that um you know protective presence is the end all and be all of of what they need there? Absolutely not, right? Um you know there's so much happening um that that needs support, they need infrastructure, they need the ability to be able to to leave and go to school, be able to leave and see the ocean, right? Um, but the protective presence helps helps prolong the fight, right? And and I think gives them a, a fighting chance. Are you armed? No. <laughs> you laugh though, but so it's it's like your your whiteness and your Jewishness is your shield. Uh and our cameras. And sometimes, you know, they they behave a little better just knowing that they're on camera, right? We've seen some pretty horrific footage coming out from both the West Bank and from Gaza and even watching your clips. Like it was just that arrogance that comes yes. with being in a supremacist state, right? And and always being the supreme. You could see it. And it it's heartening to know that there are anti-Zionists within Israel that are pushing back. We saw a massive rally in Tel Aviv not that long ago uh, asking for peace. But it does surprise me, and maybe you can help explain that a little bit, why returning the hostages was kind of a radical statement. Is it because, you know, you can't carpet bomb and return hostages at the same time? Um, You know, I think at the beginning, really, the idea was that Israel was harmed And so there needs to be vengeance. There needs to be this, this statement made that, that, you know, you cannot just harm Israelis and get away with it. So to sort of say, like, I want to prioritize the hostages over, you know, um, vengeance is, is radical. Right. Um, And in fact, it's terrifying and um you know it's really the the families of the hostages themselves that have been most able to protest and and most able to really call out the government for not prioritizing anything but this vengeance right i have so many questions to ask i don't even know which one to ask first um i guess how were you received um, by uh, the people of the West Bank, you know, as because, you know, I, I asked because of the narratives. Right. I asked because of like the the idea of like the divisions based on religion. But as as a, a Jewish person who was there to help, how were you received? Yeah, um, that's such a great question. And and I'll, I'll just take it back to my Twitter for a second where. Uh, you know, all of my my loving fans have said that, you know, Palestinians would would murder you in a second if they had the chance. Right. And it's so funny because, uh, you know, we go down there and uh, again, my my Arabic is terrible. So, you know, the second we enter a village, the the hospitality of Palestinians is unmatched. And, and so, you know, we're basically like peer pressured into sitting in the the nicest seats uh drinking as much tea as they can possibly pour us one of our hosts um you know spent the whole time saying smoke and a smoke drink and a drink just uh you know trying to make sure we're as comfortable as possible um i think any any moment that we weren't filming the army there was a small child thrusting themselves into our hands. Um, the kids just loved playing with us. The parents were happy to to get a few moments away from, you know, the constant children. Um, and, and people were just so happy to have us, not only because we're there doing the protective presence, but it means a lot for people to know that the world cares, right? The world knows what's going on. And for us to say, we came from Canada, we came because we heard about what's happening to you, um, you know, really means something. And and one of 
my my favorite things that we got to do was was show them some of the the pictures and clips of of the rallies that we've been having here in Canada um and and they love that right um and it means so much to people you know even if we we hadn't been able to successfully kind of manage anything with the soldiers i think just kind of knowing that people care people are there to support people don't want this to happen is so meaningful for them you know cuz there's a bit of me that would wonder you know I'm glad you said that, Anna, because I think like if I were in their position and someone came and offered services like that and support, there would be a little bit of it would be bittersweet. Right. Because you come from a nation that could do so much more. Right. And, you know, being Jewish as well comes with it. That old, you know, trying to break down that narrative as well. But. It seems so, so small. I feel like I'm belittling what you've done, but I'm just like thinking of the big picture and what these people have been experiencing for so long that they see hope in just like a visit and and proof that, you know, there are people walking in the streets. Like there's people dodging bombs and, yeah. you know, folks that can't farm without papers on them because of who they are, you know, like horrible conditions. And I think it's important that we know that it, it does fucking matter. That it's not just for us, right? We don't just act in solidarity to boost our own spirits and to pressure our government. But it is a demonstration to the world and hopefully to Palestinians that our governments may have forsaken them, but we have not. But that would be hard. I would feel so humble, you know, like, I'm just here. Like, I am one person. I am so sorry. I can't get my... Trudeau, like, he just doesn't listen to me, you know, I would be so apologetic, it would be really hard for me to just kind of lean in, and I, I saw you dancing, like, I imagine there's moments where you, you don't look so jovial and whatnot, but I feel like you really just kind of, you have this ability to just see the positive and see the plus real quick, and no matter what you talk about, I, people can't see Anna, but she's smiling, no matter what. No matter what, I'm almost in tears sometimes, the things that she's saying, but you still find joy in it all, which I think is so important because I don't know how you could go over there and witness that and then leave. But I think, like, you know there's value in coming home, too. Like, you missed the organizing. You saw your comrades in the streets and you weren't with them. I I mean, you're going to come back with stories and coffee and, and, and dirt, but it's, you know, was it hard to leave or were... It- was so hard and um you know on our last day this this 12 year old boy was using google translate to ask us who will take pictures when the army comes after you leave uh what will we do at night if the army comes and you're not here um and and you know trying to use google translate we're telling them like oh our our friends are gonna come tomorrow things like that right was that true? Um, uh, uh, you know, maybe not our friends, some some <laughs> other Israelis. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard, you know. And you know, being there, obviously, there's there's that direct impact, but it's also such a drop in the bucket. And you know, the things that we can do here, politically, kind of, kind of again, pushing our governments. In some ways, you know, in in some ways feels like a lot more than you can do sort of in the moment in the ground. Um, so, you know, it's really difficult. Uh, on the plane back, we landed and it was so cold here. And I was like, man, why did I decide to like come back to work in the freezing Canada when I could have like stayed there, been been fed by these families and just, you know, done this. Um, and, and so it's difficult. And I think, like, you know, no matter what I'm doing, it, it doesn't feel like enough because it's not, right? But... I feel that, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, it's important. One of the things that one of our hosts, Rafiq, asked uh, on our last day was, will you tell the world about what's going on here? And and so, you know, literally this man put me up in his home, 
fed me three meals a day, uh, you know, gave me cigarettes, tea, coffee, what have you. And all he wanted in return was to share his story, right? And and so that's both really humbling and really, really sad and painful, right? And to try to to try to do these these really, you know, amazing people justice uh you know in in telling their story on my return i think is is one it it's small but it, it's an important kind of uh it, it's a direct ask right can you tell us about rafiq rafiq my favorite guy his his favorite phrase smoke and a smoke um <laughs> uh yeah he lived in the town or the village of uh wadi tiran um we spent hours upon hours playing uh soccer with his his children um until he saved us and and brought us back in for you know tea and cigarettes um but like such a great guy um you know loves his family so much loves his land so much his dream in life literally is just to be able to build a house on his land, right? Um, but but he can't be because of the situation of the settlers and and the no build orders and what have you, right? And so for this man to have you know so little, but also share so much of it with us, and and you know he he was helping me kind of like practice my Arabic. I was help, helping him with his English, you know. Uh, his daughter wanted to learn Hebrew to to interact with the the settlers in the army. Uh, so you know, again, like as warplanes are flying overhead, we're we're like sitting in this tent, we're we're giggling, we're we're doing some language exchange, um, and and the contrast is is wild. But but you know, I think Rafiq and his family they really exemplify you know, the, the steadfastness that is born in Palestine, right? I can't imagine. I'm not functioning with warplanes overhead and my kids are flick, sorry, and my kids would be flipping out, right? We're, we're a noise sensitivity family. So that would be just pure joy. But that speaks to such a level of resilience that I guess I've never needed. We've never really needed. So I don't know if I, I have it in me. I don't, but that's unimaginable to me, you know, how life just doesn't stop, but it can't, it fucking can't, right? Because then they win. Yeah, you talked about um, no, no, no build orders. I, I, I'm not sure many people, because, you know, if you're online and you're only taking what the trolls tell you, there's no occupation. There's really no oppression going on. Palestinians are all very happy for the most part, except for Hamas, right? That's, uh, they've just got some problem with them for some reason, just violent, just violent random people. They think life is pretty golden, no build orders. Now that's not just that's not for settlers. That's specifically for Palestinians, right? That is apartheid, right? Is it not? Absolutely. And you know, again, because the settlements are so close, there's literally like fences where on the one side there's like beautiful houses, pools, electricity, everything. And then on the other side of the fence, there's there's tents, right? And and some of the guys in the area, they like to say, you know, the Israeli chickens have more rights than they do because they actually get electricity and heat in their flocks, right? Could you really tell, like, when you drove through? I, I read a, an account once of uh, Israeli going into the West Bank, but he, you know, could pass as a Palestinian. And I shared this story before he'd always been told to be fearful of what's on the other side, right? You don't go into the West. You you can go into the West Bank, but you're not going to come back as a Zionist man, right? And he had heard stories he wanted to see for himself. But as soon as he crossed over, he spoke of the fear turning to his own people because he knew all of a sudden 
he was in an apartheid state and actually he took his kippah off right to blend in. And that was the danger for him, that he would then be treated as a Palestinian. And that was unimaginable to him. That was horrific. The idea that he would be treated as a Palestinian by his army. And that was a big moment, right? Realizing that it wouldn't protect them anymore. And um, I just wish more people could witness the starkness of that apartheid, right? In our Twitter feeds, we're like debating whether it exists, right? You can show photos and videos, but uh, like there's a lot to say about real like lived experience that you know wasn't altered, that wasn't skewed. It was firsthand. And so, you know, I think that's what Rafiq means too, right? Like tell people this is not right because I think most people who see it understand that it's not right. We've been taught what apartheid looks like, right? We've seen the shanty towns of South Africa and the police violence and and the disproportionate rights that, that occur with apartheid, but it's still like somehow an argument over here in Canada whether or not, you know, Sarah Jamma got kicked out for just using the word right. apartheid. And that's maddening considering the evidence is there. Like you've been over there twice. In the summer was the apartheid just as obvious to you? Oh, it was so obvious, right? And um, in the summer, I was there, and we we built a playground, um, which is something that's like one in a million in in Masafriyata, right? Um, and and just this idea that like Palestinian children should be allowed to have a swing set is a radical notion, there, right? And that that playground is still standing, thankfully, but only in part because the the settlers really enjoy using it at night. But yeah, right. Because that's um, what I, I feared you were going to say. You went back, and the park was gone. And no, that... so yeah, that's that's I guess the flip side of uh, settlers enjoying swinging is is the playground still there, right? I I, I want to. Um... I'm going to pull from my personal experience here. Um, I just uh, came back from a much less dramatic trip, but I, I was in uh, in Colombia. And uh, one of the things there that really stood out to me as someone who's doing work in Canada was, you know, everyone kept telling me that if I was doing what I was doing here, there, I would be killed. Um, and that, when I came back to Canada, I, I brought back with me a certain boldness of here we have the opportunity to be very, quite, quite disruptive without fearing for our lives. And much of what we do here helps the battles back home in Colombia. I think the same is true um, in in your experience. So I just like kind of wanted to like ask about being back here, how you feel about like you know, what we need to do and our privilege here to be able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, for me, uh, when I'm there and I come back, I, I see that contrast as well, right? And, you know, for, for Palestinians who are activists, at any moment, they could be taken into administrative detention and, you know, perhaps never be heard from again, right? And, uh you know, even now, Israeli activists are facing a lot more sort of punishment than they were before October. Uh, but all that kind of compared to, you know, trespassing tickets or, or what have you that we get there, you know, it's it's kind of a joke, right? And, you know, it not only, again, it really like shows me my privilege, but it, it reminds me the importance of, of leveraging that privilege, right? And, and you know, for me, this is why I like to talk about, like, my border experience going in, right? Like, you can't call something not an apartheid when a Jew gets in in two minutes and a Palestinian can't even book a ticket, right? And, and so, you know, it, it's so important for us to take those risks here to be out in the streets, to be challenging, you know, silly things like, uh, no, no bridges in this one area, uh, you know, that you can be on. Right. Because the, the consequences for us 
even even if we do get charged, even if uh you know we do get ticketed, it, it's nothing compared to the real risk that you know activists are taking in Palestine uh to to say very little versus the the freedom and the ability that we have here to to say so much and to do so much right and and so that's what i think keeps me going keeps me motivated um and also calls for you know this variety of different tactics right we should be in the streets but we should also be demanding things from our government we should uh you know be be spreading the word um you know in as many ways as we can right that that was for us there santiago <laughs> sometimes we feel that same way, you know, like we, we have our niche and we're doing our part, but it just sometimes seems so small. But yeah, we're at the point where, you know, we sit in our shows and we encourage people to kind of escalate and escalate. And I think giving examples like this and hearing from you help people kind of see that perspective. Because for a lot of people getting charged with trespassing is like the end. I don't know, they may have job prospects or I don't know, it's just the worst they've ever faced. So it's very fearful to them. But, you know, <laughs> there comes a time where we all need to make sacrifices for the greater good in times that are extraordinary, even if they're extraordinarily horrific, you know. And yeah, that's partly why we do what we do here. And there was no way I wasn't going to have you come and tell your story of doing something like that. So I, I so appreciate you and your fundraisers and all the folks that made time for you to go over there so you could not just do that, do the protective presence, you know, on behalf of all the Canadians who wish that their government was the protective presence. And um, coming back to us to tell Rafiq's story, tell the stories of the towns and the villages that you went through. Is there anything about the West Bank that you'd like to share that we didn't give you an opportunity to do? Um... Yeah, I'll just say that, um, you know, protective presence is still needed. Um, and, you know, if if there was sort of the dream, there'd be like a hundred people down there every day to kind of go out to all these villages, right? So you can check out uh, orgs like International Solidarity Movement um, that are still calling for folks on the ground. Um, and, and honestly, even if you're, you know, deeply committed to the Palestine struggle, there's nothing quite like going down there and seeing it with your own eyes to renew the cause, build those relationships and, and really understand why this work matters. Thank you. And Santiago, do you have any questions before we, I guess, you know, what one, one thing, and I, I guess I'll pull a little bit from personal experience again. Uh, back in 2019, I had gone uh, to Lebanon, and when I was it, it, in in certain areas, because I went all around the country, you would hear, um, you know, the sounds of fighting. Uh, there would be gunfire. There was artillery fire going into Syria, and when I got back in Canada, I noticed that I was a bit jumpier. At, you know, loud noises. So I guess I wanted to ask, you know, because that what I, what I faced was literally nothing uh, in comparison to, you know, a, a much more active war zone. So I, I, I guess I wanted to ask how, how you're doing being back and if, you know, like what your experience is, like having heard literally the bombs going off in Gaza, like how how has that affected you? Yeah, um... You know, part of it has been this sort of uh, relaxing once I re-entered Canada, just knowing that, like, you know, the the level of surveillance and security on me is is much less. I can say the word Palestine, and and no one's gonna arrest me. Um, and and so there's like, uh, in a way, there's been like a a weight sort of lifted off my shoulders, but. You know, definitely like um I I've never had so many dreams where where soldiers uh you know come into uh 
the house that I'm sleeping in, like in my dreams, right? And just kind of like those the the impact of that, right? And for me, two weeks, right? But you know, imagine being a ten year old, that eleven year old that was uh, messaging me and having that over and over, and then on top of that, trying to live your your normal life through that, right? So, you know, for me, like. Yeah, I'm definitely like uh I've I've certainly never had armed soldiers in my dreams before. Um but but just like the fact that that's what I get from from 2 weeks it it, it kills me to think about like what those kids are going through, you know? Absolutely. I hope those soldiers leave your dreams soon. M- me too. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask. I I don't know what I want to ask specifically, but I know I want to ask about uh, every everything going on here in Canada. I guess with the protests when we had you on just over a month ago, um, and everything's still going as as strong as ever. So I guess like, do you have any thoughts on? Just because I don't know specifically what I want to ask, do you have any thoughts on everything? Yeah, I think, you know, um, something that really, really struck me when I was in the West Bank was, you know, on Al Jazeera, they show images of all these rallies, right? And and so to see that, like, our message is, is not only reaching uh, people like Justin Trudeau, but the people of Palestine are are hearing it and seeing it, like... That to me, I think is is so important, and it it keeps me going and it keeps me motivated. And oh my gosh, last weekend it was so cold during the rally. Um, but but you know to think about like this this does make a difference. This challenges uh, media narratives. This lends pressure to our government officials. And it gives hope to the people of Palestine and Palestinians who are in the diaspora, right? And and so for me, like, damn, it's cold. Damn, I would love a weekend off. Um, but you know, I, I, it, it, it's, it's, we're needed. It's still important, and and it's working, and it's making a difference. And so, you know, as as tired as we are, we we can all rest when we're we're all back in Palestine together, and all. I'll show you what to add to your tea, you know? That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.